0: Our reading this week continues in the book of Romans in chapter 3, as we take in the second half of chapter 3, verses 21 through to 31. We're reminded how in the first couple of chapters, in the first half of chapter 3, uh, Paul has been telling his readers that it doesn't really matter where they're from, what they're like, whether they're Jew or, uh, or Greek, slave or free, whether they're male or female, that we have all fallen short of God's desire for our lives, for the purpose that we were created for. And he continues that theme on in the second half of chapter 3. And there we read in verse 21 and following, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this Sunday. We often seek to measure the value and the worth of our lives. It's something that we can't ever seem to escape from. It's always a question in the back of our minds. How well have we done? Could that have been done better? Why did I fail in that way? We're constantly um, criticizing ourselves. That's not always bad, and yet it's a reality for us. We see it in the news, especially over this last year with COVID and with lockdown and with the development of vaccines and the rollout of those vaccines, there have been constant questions in the media about how well our Prime Minister has done, or our First Minister, how the government in Westminster or Holyrood has done in terms of the the development of um, ways of dealing with the effects of COVID with the, the rolling out of this vaccine? Has it done as well as it should? And as is so often the case, immediate calls for resignations because of the perceived poor handling of a crisis, one way or the other. It wasn't handled harshly enough or rigorously enough, or it was far too harsh an approach to lockdown and, and so on, and we should never have locked the country down. Our poor politicians, however much we may feel they deserve criticism, really catch it coming either way. that There's no way they can ever satisfy everyone in this country. They will always get it wrong. We connect their worth as a politician, as a cabinet member, as a first minister or prime minister with their performance as we perceive it. Did they measure up? Almost certainly not. So we should get rid of them. And the thing is, we apply that standard to our own lives. We're perhaps not as harsh with ourselves as we are with others, but we can be very, very harsh with ourselves. We look at what we've done, the way we've reacted, and we do constantly criticize ourselves. We compare ourselves constantly to others. This has been a feature of lockdown life, particularly for parents who have felt the pressure to be not just parents at home, but also teachers as children have been at home from school. As employees, as parents have sought to try and balance the the difficulty of working from home with um, raising children and educating them all at the same time in the same building without really much opportunity to leave and go elsewhere, cabin fever and claustrophobia and a complete inability, in the case of many, to teach has led to a lot of frustration and self-criticism. We constantly feel in so many areas of our lives, do we not, that we just don't measure up. I'm not a good enough son or daughter. I'm not a good enough parent or sibling. I'm not doing well enough at my job. I'm constantly overlooked for promotion or I never seem to get it right in my relationships. I, I'm just not up to standard. And for Christians, this is a real concern, isn't it? We know that we're called to be perfect as our Lord is perfect, and yet we recognize that we are so very far from perfect. So what on earth are we supposed to do? Do we just accept that we're supposed to go through this life with a massive inferiority complex, with crushing guilt and doubt about our abilities or um, our, our failures? What is it we're supposed to do? when success is everything in our world, and it is if we don't succeed and do well or exceed our expectations, then we must be failures. What are we to do? Well, one solution is that we just fake it. This is where Facebook and Instagram and, uh, and all of these social media platforms, Twitter and so on, really come into their own. We just fake it. We just present a life that's not actually real. We take photos of ourselves as we go out for our daily exercise and don't post the picture that comes 20 minutes later when we're gasping for breath and we're a ruin of our former selves and we don't think we're going to make it back home again. We post the pictures of uh, the the open Bible and the coffee cup at 6.30 because we managed to scrape ourselves out of bed and have a quiet time this morning. But we don't post a picture of what we actually look like sitting at the table fighting off sleep. We post status updates about how we've managed to bake with our children today and, and spend time with them because that's what we ought to as good parents. We post pictures of our holidays and make it look like the perfect paradise as we spend time relaxing. We fake it, but we know it's not real. And then we feel guilt because we know it's not real. And then we feel frustration because we look at other people's perfect lives and wonder how on earth we could be like them. Whether you're a Christian or not, we feel this great weight, this weight of failure and frustration because we know we don't measure up. So what are we to do? Is this all there is going to be? Will we always be this way for the rest of our lives? Is the only way out to just give up and stop caring or to fake it and to lie? How should we see our lives? How do we deal with the feeling that we maybe aren't good enough? Can we ever be truly happy? Or are we always going to be sort of miserable and a little bit anxious that, that this isn't what I hoped it would be? I'm not what I hoped I would be. Well, to get our lives in right perspective, to escape this frankly exhausting treadmill, we see three truths in this passage this morning from Romans chapter three that I think help us to understand our lives in a different perspective that offers us a way of escape and a way of being able to live even in the midst of our own failures and frustrations knowing joy and satisfaction, and not feeling the pressure to measure up to some impossible standard. We find, firstly, in this passage, Paul saying that, to be frank, we don't measure up. (laughs) We see that in verse uh, 23, where Paul tells us in no uncertain terms uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's what he spent two and a half chapters saying so far. So it shouldn't be a great surprise to hear him summarizing what he said as he comes to the end of chapter three and we get ready to embark then on what's to follow in chapter four and on into the rest of the letter. He said to us again and again and again, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew and you know the law or you're a Gentile and you've not got any clue about the Old Testament law. We all fall short. We all sin. We all live as if God isn't actually God. We live as if we are God, and that constantly sets us up for failure. There are a couple of reasons why we feel like we're failures, and and this is one of them. The other is a perfectly good and natural thing that, you know, we are created to strive to grow, and you can't grow without failure. I mean, that's how we learn, isn't it? We do something, we don't get it quite right, and so we make adjustments and try again, and so we grow and develop. And that's perfectly right and natural, and that shouldn't lead to a crushing sense of defeat, but to the expectation that next time I'm going to get it, next time I'll manage. But the second reason that Paul illustrates for us here is part of the frustration that we feel because we constantly fail. No matter how often we try and adjust and make improvements, we don't get it right. He says we have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. This is the real problem. Paul tells us that we are all sinners. We have fallen short of the reason for our existence. We were created to glorify God. That is, to testify with everything we do and everything we say and everything we think, testify to his amazing goodness. Paul calls that the the glory of God. He calls it the righteousness of God. In this passage, the righteousness of God, which is mentioned four times, is this idea of um, God will always live up to the, the, the reality that he is deserving of worship. He is deserving of glory and honor. He is the perfect being in all of creation. He is the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most wonderful being in all of creation. And so it's fitting and right that he be glorified and worshipped. And he will always work to that end. Now, we, we would think if that was a human being, that's arrogant. But the reason we think that's arrogant is because human beings are never that perfect. If you are truly perfect then you are deserving of glory and honor and praise. And God alone occupies that position. And so God's righteousness means he will always work to that end, because that is what is truly good in this universe. And when Paul says that we have um, fallen short of the glory of God, he's saying we are unrighteous We are not trying to live up to that reality, that true right standard, that everything in creation should testify to the glory of God, which is why we were made. We were made to do that, and because of our sin, which turns us away from God and into ourselves, we live for our own glory. We try and supplant God's place in the universe with ourselves, which is crazy. That is arrogant, because we are not infinite in power, in grace, in mercy, in love, in holiness, in justice. So we don't deserve to be praised. And you would think that living for our own satisfaction, our own fulfillment, our own exaltation, you would think that that would lead to us being happy, wouldn't you? This is why when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he was so successful, because in saying to Adam and to Eve, or saying to Eve specifically, that if you eat the fruit of the tree that God has said not to eat, you will be like God. He is saying to her, you will be truly satisfied. You can be like the one who needs nothing and no one, who can enjoy everything because he has made it for his own glory. You can be like him. You will be truly satisfied. And Eve wants that more than anything. Adam wants that. All their children, us, we want that. We want to be truly, deeply fulfilled and satisfied. And the lie is, worshiping yourself will achieve that. Catering to yourself will achieve that. And it never can. It's not what we were made for. In our own experience, to put this into everyday context, I was thinking over this past week about times when I have lived like that. And not done so in some kind of self-aggrandizing way, but just through everyday life, I've looked back and reflected and realized that's, that's me, that's what I've done. And I can remember so clearly of all the experiences that came to mind, one which was truly crushing to me. I had, um, I had been so eagerly Uh, Anticipating learning to drive. I was desperate to get uh, my driver's license, get the keys to my first car, and experience the freedom that we all kind of feel when we learn to drive, when we pass our test. I longed for that. Everybody in my family loved driving. Everyone in my family, everybody in my family had passed their test first time. And so there was an expectation that I would do so. And I sat my test and I failed. And I remember realizing, before the examiner said anything, as we pulled back into the test center, I knew that I'd failed. And there was a crushing weight that fell upon me. And I mean, it sounds so silly, doesn't it? I mean, who really cares in the grand scheme of things? But I did. My whole identity had been bound up in succeeding, in doing well, and in one thing more than anything else, in passing my test and being able to drive. And I felt in that moment shame, anger, frustration, embarrassment, just this huge weight upon my shoulders. And although I didn't realize it at the time, looking back, I had sort of built my identity around doing well, and in particular doing well in this area of my life. And when I failed, I almost I almost didn't want to go home. I almost didn't want to tell my family that I'd failed. And to make matters even worse, I went to sit my test the second time. And when the same examiner came out of the test center, I knew this is it. I'm going to fail again. And I did fail for a second time. It was horrendous. And I didn't want to go home. In fact, I didn't want to sit a driving test ever again because I thought, I'm just going to keep doing this forever. I'm never going to pass. I passed on the third and uh, thankfully final time. But Looking back, I realize just how much of my identity was bound up in success. And when it didn't come, I just couldn't cope. I didn't know what to do. Well, our Creator made us to fulfill a purpose in life. And when we try and replace Him and that purpose, glorifying Him with anything else, when we fail, it's crushing. We feel as if our existence is somehow called into question. that that we just don't know what to do or where to turn. And just as it was with the driving test, it doesn't have to be something big. In fact, so often when we look at our lives, we realize how small the things are that we build all of our meaning and purpose on. And when we fail in those areas, we feel crushed and we don't know what to do. We call our own identity, our meaning, our value into question. And Paul says that actually is as it should be, because we don't measure up. We have a standard that we're to live for, God's glory, and we don't measure up to it. So what are we supposed to do? When we begin to try and fix our lives, we see that no matter who we are, no matter what we do, we fail. We failed God, and so again and again and again, we constantly will feel crushed. We're going to see that failure in every area of our lives. The real problem is that we don't really want to serve God. We've been fooled into thinking that serving ourselves will bring joy and meaning and value to our lives. Being the best mother, this is Mothering Sunday, Mother's Day. And so many people build their identity on being a mum, and when they perhaps can't be, it's crushing. And we can totally understand that. Or they build their identity on being a great mum when their children are born, and then when they they feel they're not measuring up, they're crushed under that weight of expectation that they have placed upon themselves. And that's totally understandable, and I'm just picking on, on mothers because it's Mother's Day. We can look at ourselves in so many areas of life, in our work, in our home lives, whatever it might be, in our Christian lives. Paul says in chapters 1 to 3 of Romans, our identity isn't built on this, or it oughtn't to be. The first way we begin to deal with this problem is to recognize that we don't measure up to God's purpose for us. And so we're never going to feel we measure up in any other area of life. When we fail as Christians, we fail in every other area of life because the best person you can be as a family member, as an employee, as a Christian, a church member, is one who honors and loves God with everything that you do. And if you fail there, which we all do by dint of birth, because we're all born sinners, then we're going to fail and feel the sting of that failure, the pain of it. The first thing we must do is recognize that we don't measure up. But all is not lost, there is hope. In verse 21 through to 26 of our passage, Paul tells us that the righteousness of God has now been revealed in Jesus' death on the cross and in his resurrection. Now, the Old Testament, Paul says, doesn't save you. It's given as a standard to show you your failure, but it can't actually save you in and of itself. It testifies, it witnesses to the truth of our failure and to the coming salvation that we find in Jesus. It points us to that, but it doesn't in and of itself save us. We have to put our faith, Paul says, in Jesus, the one that Scripture testifies to. And in him we find redemption from our sins, salvation. Now, the Jews in Paul's day were rightly a bit concerned, as we thought last time, that Paul was saying there was no point in being a Jew and there was no point in the Old Testament because it's all about just trusting in Jesus. Confess your sins and trust in Jesus. And Paul's almost saying that that God's word is therefore invalid. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not true. The best thing you can do as a Jew is read scripture, see your sinfulness, see the only means of salvation God has provided, and put your faith in that, in him. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. The highest thing you can do in life is placing your faith in Jesus as the only one who is able to address the problem of your failure, of your sin. That is what the Old Testament says. That is the one great truth that should define our lives, that should be the turning point of our lives. He says that God the Father put forward Jesus, his Son, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this is really important. In fact, this is so important that um, the Reformers, Luther in particular, Martin Luther, said this passage is the whole turning point of the entirety of Scripture. This is the central truth of all Scripture. This is the very linchpin of our existence, in fact. God is totally just. He is completely righteous, the righteousness of God. Another way of putting that is he will always only ever do what is right. So how can sinners who have offended God, the Old Testament tells us, Be made right with God, which is what God says he will do. He will redeem a people for himself. Although they are sinners and God cannot abide sin, he won't leave them in their sin. He will draw them to himself. He will deal with their sin. How can God do that without crushing them? Because the penalty of sin is death, God tells Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So the only way for sin to be addressed is for sinners to die and to be pushed away, as it were, from God. So how can God save a people for himself and still be just and upright, righteous? Paul says that he addresses the problem of sin. He pays for the penalty of our sins himself because we can't. The debt is simply too much for us. It would be like the person who I'm sure you've heard of, there are many people in our society who gets themselves into debt for all sorts of reasons, not necessarily a bad reason, but can't pay off the debt, and so the only thing they can do is take out another loan to pay off the first debt. And then they realize they've now got to pay off another loan, which is perhaps harsher conditions than the first loan, so they have to take out another one. So they take out a credit card to pay off the debt, that they've now incurred and the cycle just goes round and round and round and the interest racks up and up and up and every time they pay off one debt they simply incur more it will never ever end the hole just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and in the end the only way to to deal with it is to ignore it is to run away and pretend the debt doesn't exist and just hope that the bailiffs don't turn up and that's exactly the problem with our sin God knows we can't pay, so he offers to pay it himself. He sends his son to pay. Jesus is perfect. He has never sinned. So when he comes, he is able to offer himself up in our place to take our sin upon himself and to give us, as it were, his perfect righteousness, his perfect adherence to the purpose of humanity, to live for God's glory. And this is what Paul means when he talks about the wrath of God in the first three chapters of Romans being poured out upon sinners. Jesus takes that wrath that should be poured out on our lives, the judgment of God on us for our sin, and he pours it out on Jesus, his perfect righteous son. God hates sin, and so he makes sure it is paid for. So we either seek to, to try and pay it ourselves, ignore its reality, and die and face punishment for eternity for that sin. Distance between us and God. We don't experience the love of God for eternity because we didn't want it in this life. Or all our sins are placed on Jesus. And when he dies on the cross, the punishment is done and gone. It is paid for, and Jesus is raised from the dead as proof that the punishment has been taken, paid for in full. And that's what propitiation means. It means a satisfactory payment for something has been made. The satisfaction of someone else's wrath has been satisfied. In this case, Jesus satisfies God's wrath for our sins by dying our death, taking our place and making us free. If we will confess our sins, if we will turn from them and follow in the way that God would desire us to go in the first place. And Jesus does this for us so that we can be free. We acknowledge he has paid our sins, paid for our sins, and we trust in him with the rest of our lives. And when he says, sin for you is finished, we believe that it truly is. Because Jesus' payment was perfect, all my sins, all your sins are paid for, and God has shown to the entire world how righteous he is. Because he hasn't just swept our sin under the rug and pretended it doesn't exist. He has had it paid for in full. He has poured out all his wrath on Jesus for it. He has punished sin completely, and yet he has redeemed us so that we can be free from that punishment. And so, Paul says, God is just He has punished sin, but he is also the justifier of many. He has made us right. He has helped us escape that punishment and yet done so in a way that is truly righteous. He says that God has done this to pass over former sins, And what he means by that is all those in the Old Testament who never saw Jesus' death on the cross in payment for their sins, when they trusted in God for the forgiveness of their sins, he passed over those sins until Jesus died, and then all the weight of those sins were placed on Jesus, looking forward, just as all our sins are placed on Jesus, looking back. And so he redeems those in the past—Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon—all of those faithful believers in the Old Covenant— and he redeems us in the present time, in the present day, as we look back. And so God shows himself to be perfectly just and righteous. He deals with sin. He saves a people for himself, for his own glory, and he does so perfectly. You might worry about not being good enough in many areas of your life, and the reality is that you aren't, and on your own you can't ever be I know this because Jesus had to come and die in your place to pay for your sin. But here's the great reality of that. When Jesus confesses that you aren't good enough and yet dies in your place anyway, in that moment you are liberated from that old way of life that is failure constantly and are redeemed to a new way of life where you can actually live in the hope that there will be an end to failure and frustration that you can live in the hope and the expectancy of true success, that you can actually glorify God with your life, even though you're going to do so imperfectly. There is joy in these truths. Jesus is perfect, and God did send him to be your substitute. And when you accept his sacrifice in your place, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, if you put your faith in him and his sacrifice, then you will go on to live a transformed life that will grow in holiness, will grow in righteousness over time. You will seek to glorify God with all that you do, regardless of what area of life that may be. This is the great truth that Paul reveals to us so that we can escape this, this great weight, this great crushing reality that we're just never going to measure up perfectly. We're always going to fail. We could always be better and yet never arrive. Paul says, whilst that is in a sense true, Your whole life is put in a different perspective when you realize Jesus has come to pay for your sin, which is the thing that's tying your feet together the whole time and means you can never progress. And now you have real hope that righteousness will mark your life and that holiness will grow that your lives will be changed and transformed, and that's where Paul goes next, that we are transformed through our faith in Jesus. In verse 27 through 231, Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. We have no right to boast. We are failures. Everything in our lives was marred and corrupted by sin. Every area of life was damaged and infected by it. So we could never truly glorify God as an employee, as a pupil or a student at school or or university or college. We we could never truly glorify God as a, a parent or as a child or a sibling or an aunt or an uncle or as a church member. We could never do that because sin constantly kept us held down, held back, and now we are free. So we don't have any right to boast in ourselves, because failure was what marked our lives. We do get to boast in Jesus. That's Paul's point. You can't be a Jew or a Gentile and boast in your own greatness. There is no greatness. There is only greatness in Jesus. And so our boasting is not in ourselves. He says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith, faith in what? Not just faith generally in ourselves, faith in the one righteous one who is totally perfect. Jesus. And so here's what that means for us. The more we realize that our lives were marked by sin and failure, the more we cast ourselves upon Christ as our Savior, as our Redeemer, not just the one who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God, as Scripture tells us, but the one who is constantly, from that moment when we were first saved, refining us and changing us and shaping us and molding us and helping us to grow, the more we recognize that reality and live in light of it, the more we are transformed. The more we will boast not in how great we are, but in how great Jesus is. And that is the means by which we grow. It circles round on itself. The more we lift up and extol the glory of Jesus in our lives, the more we will want to do so it's an amazing reality. This is truly wonderful news. It shouldn't be, should it? You were a failure. Jesus is perfect. In what way should that make our lives truly wonderful and joy-filled? Well, it's done so in the bringing together of those two realities, that because Jesus is perfect, we are made different. We are made righteous. And so Paul says, that we hold that one is justified by faith uh, apart from the works of the law. We are redeemed apart from our own labor. We are redeemed because the work of Jesus, and we should glorify God for that. Is God the God of the Jews only, those who are under the law? No, he's the God of all people. And so all people can be redeemed, not by working really hard through our own effort, but by trusting in Christ as our Savior. So people from every tribe and nation and language can be part of God's family, but can glorify God. You can glorify God, however imperfectly you may do so, not because you're awesome, but because Jesus is. Because he will enable you to through his sacrifice on the cross. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We testify to the truthfulness of God from Genesis through to Revelation, through the reality of faith in Jesus Christ, because that is what it all is about. How can we who are sinners glorify God, fulfill the reality of our existence? Faith in Jesus. That is what enables us to live that kind of life. That is what equips us every step of the way to do so. We will never, ever be rejected by God for being a failure when we are in Christ, because God has not only confessed that you are a failure when Jesus had to come and take your place, he confesses that you have been transformed and given a new life in Jesus through that sacrifice. You are not what you once were. True, you are not what you one day will be either, but you are on a process. You are making steps constantly on that journey to that end when Christ calls you home or returns and makes you completely perfect. There is no ground for boasting in ourselves for any of us because Jesus did it all. So we get to boast in Jesus. And here's the great reality for our faith as we grow in faith. When we tell other people about how amazing Jesus is, not how great we are, we are able to see them transformed. We are able to see their lives redeemed and made new so that they can go and begin to glorify God. So the glory of God grows and builds and builds and builds the more we do this. And this is how God glorifies himself in creation, as his kingdom grows and expands, as the failure of his sinful children is transformed, is redeemed through Christ's work on the cross. And this is why, as we point to him and say, isn't he amazing, that we then get to go and glorify him as a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter, an aunt, or an uncle, as a church member, as an employee, as a student, as a school pupil, as whatever it may be that we are in this life. This is what Paul means in Colossians 3 when he says, we do all things not as if we do them for men, we do them as if we're doing it for God, because we glorify God in everything everything we do as Christian people, because we're testifying to his goodness that we have been redeemed by Jesus's blood, as Jesus made a perfect, satisfactory sacrifice for our sins. And when we fail, we confess it, and we turn from it, and with all our strength, we go forward in the direction the Lord would have us go. And if that marks your life, you will never be a failure to God. You might not be a success in worldly terms, but who cares about worldly terms of success? What we care about is success in the eyes of the one who made us. You might not be the most awesome cook and the perfect teacher and the perfect employee all rolled into one as we go through lockdown. You're not called to be. You're called to glorify God in the raising of your children and your teaching of them and your exemplifying the Christian life and your working hard for your boss and whatever it may be, that is what you are called to be, one who testifies to the goodness and the glory of God in all of those things, even though they might not be as great as your neighbor or your friends on Facebook or wherever it may be. Your success is not to be seen in worldly terms, climbing the corporate ladder, whatever. Your success is seen in honoring God in Christ, with your life, wherever and whatever you do. This is where true joy is found, and this is freedom from the treadmill of the world. You are not enough, but in Christ you are made new. Glory to God. Amen let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks. Lord, we thank you that your perfect righteousness is revealed in the sending of your Son to take our place, that he died our death, paid for our sins, and makes us new. Lord God, help us to mark our lives not by worldly success, by the standards of our culture, of our friends, our family, but by the standard you have set before us. Do we live for you Do we seek to honor you in all that we do? Lord God, as we do that, I pray that you would give us all as a fellowship joy and peace in believing that we may truly abound in hope in this life. That although we might not measure up to the standards that our neighbors set, our friends set, our family, our employer sets, Lord, we might live in accordance with the standard that you, our Creator and our God, have set over us. Lord, this is where we will draw our joy in eternity from, living in accordance with your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us all the strength to see, to realize this reality, to ground ourselves upon these simple truths that Paul explains, and, Lord, find joy in following in your way, however much we may struggle and falter and fail on the journey. Lord God, we give you thanks for our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Without him, we truly would be nothing and lost without hope in this world. But because of him, we are given new lives and we are given the hope of glory. Lord God, we give you thanks for your great goodness to us and ask your blessing upon us now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to draw our service now to a close as our worship group come and lead us in our final song. Let's sing together.